0: the first Sunday of Advent, which for pretty much everyone means it's the Christmas season. So we begin playing Christmas music, and scheduling and attending parties, and singing carols, and on and on. But did you know that according to the Christian calendar, it's not actually Christmas season yet? Christmas Christmastide begins at midnight on the night of December 24th the morning of the 25th, and Christmas tide extends up to January 5th, followed immediately by the day of Epiphany, Epiphany of our Lord on January 6th, and then the first Sunday of the season of Epiphany, which this year is January 7th. So it's not Christmas time yet. <laughs> Don't get upset with Matt for singing Christmas carols. He's just, you're just giving us. That's what you do, that's what you do. I know, I'm splitting hairs. I'm just being a contrarian, which some of you love, others of you not so much. I do think there's value in being fully present in Advent before we arrive at the manger on Christmas Day. Advent is the time where we anticipate an arrival And the primary arrival that we are anticipating is the second arrival, or what we call the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is why the Church has us read strange passages like Mark 13 on this first Sunday of Advent. We believe that God came to earth in human flesh around 2,000 years ago, and that is Christmas. And just as surely as that took place in the past, He will most certainly come again in fact, because of that certainty, we believe that He will come in the future. And everything we say, and everything we do in the meantime, as followers of Jesus, reflect those two moments in time. We look back at the first advent, and we believe. We believe what Jesus said, who He is, the divine and human, fully divine and human Son of God, We believe what He did. We believe that what He promised He will do. And we also look forward. We look forward in anticipation of the second advent. And here's the striking feature of that second arrival. When Jesus was on earth, everything He said and did, all the healings, all the promises, His death, His resurrection, everything that He told us is true about God, and the world, and love, and grace, hope and forgiveness and abundant life which is absolutely true and present now will be fully seen and experienced when he returns at that second advent. The older I get, the more I want it. You? Because that life will be the sort of life that can't imagine grieving for any more lost loved ones. Or enduring yet another disappointment in a so-called friend. Or watching someone on the streets of Portland overdose. And that life will not have that continuing battle of the internal monster of anger or depression or anxiety or a life. And who would want to miss that? If something that great was coming? If an opportunity like the good life was just around the corner, well, I'd want to be ready for it, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you anticipate it with edge of your seat enthusiasm, even? It's like the small child standing up on a chair peeking just over the windowsill, waiting for mom or dad or their best friend to come home, so they can go out and play. That kind of enthusiasm. But we're not there yet. We're in the meantime. So what do we do in the meantime? And when Jesus says, watch, or in other English translations, They translate that phrase, or that term, stay awake. When Jesus says, stay awake, what does that look like for us? What does it mean? What do we do in the meantime? The parable in our reading in Mark's Gospel is about an absentee landlord who's left the servants in charge of the cultivation and management of the land and the property, while the owner goes on some sort of long journey must have been a lot of that sort of thing going on in Galilee at the time because Jesus mentions some variation of this, 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 ab, this uh, very thing of absentee landlords multiple times to the Gospel. Matthew 24, 25, Mark 12, for example. And when we hear this parable, we immediately sympathize with the servants who are left behind left behind by this guy who can afford to own all of it, yet ignore it, (laughs) or at least seemingly ignore it on a daily basis. I mean, where'd he go? Why? How long will he be away? Jesus doesn't offer any of those details. Surprise, surprise. He only says that the landowner will return at some point, and even he, even the landlord landowner isn't entirely sure when that day will be, but he will return, he says. So be ready, live every day as if it's that day, the day of return. And so Jesus seems to be saying that an absentee landlord is a time for the servants to be tested. Will the servants faithfully execute on their responsibilities? Or will the absence linger in their minds for so long that they begin to believe that the landlord will, in fact, never return? That he's forgotten? That he doesn't care anymore about them or the land? And maybe that he doesn't, in fact, keep any of his promises? Absence in Jesus' view, is an opportunity to demonstrate what kind of servants we are and how we truly feel about the Master, the Lenin. In school, your teacher will occasionally step out of the room, right? She'll leave specific instructions as to what you should be doing while she's away. Furthermore, she says, Mrs. Whitaker across the hallway will have her door open, and Mrs. Whitaker will be able to hear every noise, so she'll give a report of all you wild children who are misbehaving. I had an elementary school teacher. Any teachers here? School teachers? Yeah. I had an elementary school teacher who used to say those sorts of things. But then she would leave the classroom and duck around the corner. And you know what she would do? She would stand there for about 30 seconds, just waiting. Because she knew exactly what would happen. People like me would start to do all that stuff she anticipated that I would do to cause trouble. And when she heard it, she'd duck back in. (laughs) And we'd be caught. We learned, you know, we kept quiet for a while. The absence of the teacher is a test. And it's an opportunity to demonstrate faithfulness, or faithlessness, as the case may be. And the longer we live, the more aware we are of our own faithlessness and our innate ability to mess everything up, don't we? I mean, we know that. Here at In Town Church, right? We know that people fail us. We know that organizations neglect their responsibilities. And we also know that each of us has our own blind spots. And we end up doing and saying things that just make a mess of us. So we have absence, the landowners away. But we long for Jesus' full presence with us, to set everything right, everything including us, everything including our own hearts. We did sing one Advent hymn. Do you know which one it was that we sang earlier? O come, O come, Emmanuel. Presence is far preferable to absence. Oh, that you would Rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, the prophet writes in Isaiah, which we read earlier. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name. Who rouses himself to take hold of you? Why? Why is there no one? The next phrase, for you have hidden your face from us. If Jesus would just come back soon, he'd be able to straighten out all this mess in our city, or he'll sort out those heretical liberals. Or maybe you'll finally get the message through to those close-minded fundamentalists and evangelicals. Wherever you find yourself in the spectrum, I can't help but wonder if we so long for Christ's full and physical presence so that he'll take care of all of those. Right? The ones out there, the other. Mainly, the people who don't see life in church the way that I do. The ones with whom I profoundly disagree. Oh, you know, we all have our disagreements. We can disagree on whether coffee gets served before or after the service, whether we have it in the narthex or the Fellowship Hall, and we'll probably all continue to get along even with those sorts of disagreements. But we know that there are those disagreements that rouse the emotions to the extent that it's difficult for us to see our way through them, and to sit at a table, and to share a meal with those people. Jesus, rent the heavens and come down, and take care of all of those wayward sheep out there. But I'm struck by what Jesus says in the parable that we read. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Did you hear that? Jesus has gone away, which is shocking and bewildering, but even more shocking than his absence is that he's left us in charge. Servants. Servants like Thomas, who doubts, and Peter, who steps in it all the time. And James and John, who loved a good argument, maybe a fight. Servants like Paul, who at one stage was happy to see enemies stoned to death. All sorts of sermons, or sorry, servants, and sermons, I guess. And then servants like you and me. People who want Jesus to come and take care of everyone else, but Jesus says that He's put His servants in charge, each with His own work. I think that's a big part of what it means when Jesus says, stay awake. He's saying, be mindful of the work that I've charged you to, do. Gifted you, I have called you, I have asked you to be about my business, to do what I have been doing. So just crack on with it. Absence is an opportunity to see who really loves the landlord, Jesus, and who is a worthless servant. The servant that only does her work when the master is standing over his shoulder is a worthless servant and has no love either for the Master or for the Master's work. But the servant who faithfully tends to her task, to the calling, while the landlord is away, is the one who loves him and is eagerly expecting his return, the one who is so consumed with obeying the Savior that they hardly pay attention to what everyone else is up to. Yes, we love the presence of God, and we want His presence. We believe that because of the first Advent, Jesus is present with us in word and sacrament, and amongst His people, and we're motivated to joyfully anticipate the second Advent. But in the meantime, we stay awake, focused on the task at hand, Believing the landlord could return at any moment and ignoring anything that might divert our attention away from him. I mean, what would happen to our churches if we resisted the distraction of gossip and just continued to serve and to bless and to pray? and to work as hard as we possibly could in the calling that God has given us. What would happen? What would happen if when people leave and go church shopping, and leave it in your lap, if our joy did not dissipate? Because we still have a call. We still have a task. And Christ says, crack on with it. I'm struck by a couple of these phrases. When we hear Jesus say, stay awake, and when he talks about coming at any moment, including the part of the night, I'm not sure if you picked this up, uh, including the part of the night just before dawn, when the rooster crows. Did you hear that in the reading? Stay awake. I might come back when the rooster crows. What do you think, of? i I'm transported to Gethsemane and to Peter, standing beside the fire while Jesus is interrogated and tortured. While Jesus was praying in Gethsemane, Peter, James, and John had one job. Do you remember what it was? Stay awake. awake. That's all you got to do. Jesus came back at some point. They were asleep. He roused them. He said, can you not stay awake? Stay awake and pray. Some translations say, watch, same thing he's saying here in our parable. And instead, they slept. At the crux of human history, they slept. The landlord went away, absent, into the garden, and said to stay awake. And when all of the powers of heaven were gathering in order to destroy sin, and the works of the devil in a plot to us for the ages, the disciples slept. The ones to whom Jesus was entrusting all the work. In fairness, though, I'm sure they have the same questions that we would have had. Where's he gone anyway? Why did he just bring three of us all this way? only to tell us to sit here and wait and watch. What about the others? They got left way back there. Why didn't they come? And by the way, where's Judas? Watch for whom? Pray for what? He's going to pull one of those all-night prayer vigils again, isn't he? He likes those. He won't be back until dawn at the earliest, so a little sleep is probably smart, even strategic. Jesus says to us too. Stay awake. But Lord, your people have been doing this work for centuries and you still haven't come back. And then what about all those people over there that are messing everything up? I've been trying to follow faithfully for so many years and look how everything has turned out for me. Churches are in a mess. I failed at everything I've touched. My children don't believe anything I taught them. I continue to sing. I continue to worship. I continue to serve on Sunday. And it doesn't look like much of anything is changing at all. you ever felt that? I have. I keep giving my money to churches that fail. Surely I should have invested in mutual funds. At least that would have produced something practical, something I could use. Furthermore, Lord, how can we look our neighbor in the eye and with a straight face tell her there's a good God who is all powerful, even though she just buried her young cancer-filled child? What am I saying? What do I say to my friend who discovers my religious tendencies and says, yeah, prove it? You know, Jesus, I don't know about this. It's been a long time you've been away. Think about it, Jesus. If I dare object to the wave of cultural morality on the basis that God opposes that behavior, I'm laughed out of the public square. Or maybe worse. Why doesn't He rin the heavens and come back to His own land, His own people, His own servants, and take care of this mess? If everything you said is true, come back. Maybe all this stuff I've been taught since I was a child really is nonsense. I mean, maybe there was a Jesus virgin births and resurrections just don't happen any more back then than they do today. Ancient people tended to believe any sort of myth. They weren't scientifically advanced like we are. It couldn't have been both human and God at the same time. That's just irrational. Sounds exactly like the sort of things the Romans would say to get people to obey Caesar. Same script, different. Plus, look at all the failures of his so-called church in the centuries. They blindly keep believing in this guy, all the while maneuvering for power and just behaving like a bunch of hypocrites. Yeah, I don't need that. So much more delight. And the last thing I need is to lose time and money and hope and be subjected to toxic, manipulative people. I'm out. I need some rest. I'm going to take a nap. And the rooster crows.